Welcome to Cheer Out Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. And I have to first apologize to this wonderful group because we tried to bring them on a few months back and I had major problems getting them on. They were there. We went live. We couldn't get it together. It was on my end. I was trying to do two programs. They both conflicted. We fixed it. And the crazy part is as soon as I ended the show, I figured it out, but I couldn't do it while the show was running. So, but this group toured the world and they started with a funny name and they cleaned up the name. So their name when they started, of course, was Crazy Penis and then it went to Crazy P. Well, let's, we'll ask them to explain how that all went down. They also have some really great soulful house music and they do all different tempos and dance. They play out, they do the DJ circuit, they also do the live circuit. So they're a band, but then they're also a DJ. It's wonderful how to see how this all comes together. And the masterminds behind it are brilliant at what they do. I'd like to welcome to True Stories today, the wonderful group. I'm crazy, P. They're all together. Everybody's here. And welcome. Thank you, everyone. Whoop, whoop. And again, we can't thank you enough for coming on board. And you've had a crazy summer because I know I saw you when I was out there in the UK. I know you've been doing a lot of traveling and you're still going to keep doing more and more and more. But again, thank you for agreeing to come back on, even though we had not a wardrobe malfunction, but a malfunction with the computer. But again, I deeply apologize for that. But everybody here is coming. So welcome in. So say hello, everybody, and then start to get into the show. Take one. Uh, Danielle, I'll start with you. Uh, Hi. <laughs> Hello, Danielle. So, Hello. what are your hobbies? <laughs> no, I don't do that. I just ask questions like this. We go right into it deeply. I'll start like this because it'll make it easier. As each one of you, are, of course, an integral part to Crazy P, I would like to say you can each take a turn. How did music find you as a young kid? You know, how did you make your way into? coming up to where Crazy P happened? Uh, wow, gosh. I mean, um, I suppose I always had an interest in music, but it was more vague than kind of being a musician of, of any any kind. I was always into dancing, and that kind of started with ballroom and Latin American when I was nine. Um, but, you know, I was always dancing around the front room to fame. I'd shut the curtains on a Saturday morning and jump around to fame that was on telly in the 80s and uh, really fancied myself as a a budding kind of, um, what was she called, Cara? The, the main woman in the, she was like the dance teacher. Anyway, that never happened. Um, so I was really fortunate to kind of live in Manchester where we had a lot of pirate radio stations and I used to tune into a radio station called Sunset Radio and they used to play lots of soul music, lots of kind of rare groove stuff. And um, 
from there on in, there were various uh, introductions to people like Shirley Bassey and um, Barry White. My nana used to work at a hotel and she met Barry White and um, Shirley Bassey and that was the first place that I heard that kind of music. Um, and then I suppose from there, it was it was Clubland, the Hacienda. Uh, we were kind of blessed with a lot of clubs in Manchester. There was a really healthy electronic dance music scene. There was a really healthy disco scene and a dance music scene. We had the Summer of Love in 1988, 89, early 90s. There was the Manchester movement. And along the way, I was picking up friends who were equally as interested in music, but I'd still not kind of started to perform. And then I kind of like met a guy and I joined like a bedroom band. We never really did anything, but we wrote music. And um, consequently was introduced to another group of people by association who ultimately knew the guys. I lived in a shared house in Manchester and uh, one of the girls that lived in the house went out with Tim, who was the bass player from the original Crazy Penis lineup. So Jim and Toddy meeting at uni, and then Tim was part of the original three-piece. Um, and then I met Tim in the house and consequently met Jim and Toddy. Is that how it happened, lads? Yeah, I mean, I mean much. it's so long ago, I can't, you know, it, sound, it sounds right. Yeah, I mean, you know, that was kind of like 99 moving into 2000, which is when I ultimately met the lads. And that's really where I kind of started collecting vinyl. I was DJing at after parties and in various back rooms and bars. And and then we ultimately met at a house party. And I think they caught me entertaining a group of people. And... Uh, entertainer and um, would hold court with whoever was in the party house at the time she would be entertaining them and I just you know they would be hanging off her every word and I, it, it, it got me thinking it as to whether whether she could sing or not because I was thinking if she can sing we, you know this is going to be this is going to be fantastic fortunately she could <laughs> And um, and then we started after that, didn't we? Yeah, we started. We had a kind of a jam session where we just all came together and it seemed to work. And uh, that's kind of really, we were very, very lucky that it happened quite organically. You know, it wasn't like we advertise or the guys advertise. It, it happened really organically and we had mutual friends. And, and so it was quite a, a natural progression. And I think maybe that's kind of why we're still together. I think we've lost you. Sorry, lost Sorry I muted. I, I muted because this way I don't get the echo to everybody. Um, I was going to ask Jim Crazy P <laughs> to give us his part from now that she's leading into you. You can start from the same place. As a younger kid, before this crazy P thing happened, uh, yeah. Well, I was um, I had quite a different introduction to music. I was brought up in North Wales, very small town. I started playing trombone, 
my, bro my older brother was a trumpet player. He was six years older than me, and I started on trombone just because I was sick of waiting in the car for him to have lessons to get picked up. I thought, if you can't beat them, join them. So I started having trombone lessons. Um, I joined a brass band, uh, which was like a very small town, well, a village almost in North Wales called Clanrig. And, and my development came through basically more standard classical music. I joined the county orchestra, then the North Wales Youth Orchestra. Um, and at the same time, I started having piano lessons. Um, and that sort of took me up till sort of it was time to decide whether I wanted to go to university or not. At which point a friend of mine was going to this club in Liverpool, which uh, people will know. I mean, at that point it was just one room, but Cream had just started. Um, and we're talking sort of early, well, very early in the 90s. And my friend who was going up there couldn't drive, so I drove him up there. And Tony Humphreys was DJing. And um, it sounds a bit cheesy now, but I'm going to use the word epiphany. But I, uh, I had one uh, on the dance floor, and, and that's from that point, my musical journey totally changed. Can you just uh, explain to everybody what Tony Humphreys would have been like walking into that cream thing? Like, uh, Well, it was a tiny room at that point. It was only probably about, I don't know, 300 people. And it was just really, really quality house. Um, really groovy bass lines, put together immaculately well. I mean, I, I mean, I'd obviously heard nothing quite like it at that point. Um, and um, I just got, I totally went with it. And I think from that point, I sort of, we got back, we drove back to North Wales, which was about an hour's trip from Liverpool and I was like, right, that's it. <laughs> I don't want to, uh, I'm not really interested in the sort of brass band orchestral route. I want to try and do something musically like this. Um, and then uh, I was just, I'd already committed to go into a, to do a degree, which was a music degree. So I did that. And then um, I was edging my bets because I was think I wanted to become a professional trombonist, but all the orchestras were full. And um, so I did a combined degree with music and law. So then I ended up in Nottingham, which is where I met Chris. He was doing a, cre a creative course. I was doing my law finals. And um, we met through a mutual friend. So you guess you look back on these moments, don't you know, when you talk about it, you think, oh God, that was really, that's quite a pivotal meeting that. I mean, I basically bumped into her walking down the street and I knew her from a, another town. Well, I had no idea you lived here. No, I didn't have any idea you lived here. Oh, do you want to come around with mine tonight? Yeah, great. I had no friends in Nottingham at that point. And I went round to her house and Chris was there. And um, we got chatting and um, we, I mean, hit it off immediately, started hanging out. Chris was already making some music. I'd already flirted with making music. I think I'd made one pretty dreadful record. Um, and Chris was making stuff for his course. So we sort of combined our gear and started um, making tunes and um, going to car boot sales. 
pilfering disco, sort of like finding disco really, because at that point the UK house scene had um, really popped off. So right. like labels like Euphonic and Paper, uh, all taking an influence from that. But at that point, I didn't really know much about disco. Um, apart from that, and I think that was the start of our journey into really finding out about the culture and um, about the birth of the music and um, yeah, well, we yeah, and that was that was basically the start of Crazy Penis, I think. Yeah, it's always yeah. funny to hear that how everyone meets up in your towns, like where you live again. You go to way to Union, and somehow not the first time hearing that kind of story. Where we went away to school, we came back and we met again, and we now created this band or this production team. All right, Mr. Todd, you're in the hot seat, brother. Tell yeah. me. Okay, so I'm just trying to get the light better in here, but it's sort of we're just gonna have to make do with this. Um, yeah, I, so I, I, yeah, I kind of think that one of the earliest musical influences for me as a kid was. Like my dad is the musical one out of my mum and dad, and um, he always gently kind of put things under my nose a little bit, you know, like um, tried to get me interested in guitar, and um, I wasn't really too keen on the guitar at an early age, but um, he had a keyboard, um, and... Um, it was one of those electronic keyboards with drums on it and stuff. And I used to love messing around with that from sort of quite an early age. And that really sort of sparked a bit of an interest, really. Um, a bit later on, um, I got a bit more interested in the guitar. Um, I was quite into sort of rock and blues and stuff. And um, I asked my dad to teach me. So he kind of showed me a few basic chords. Uh, my dad's very, um, he's a really good folk kind of finger style picking acoustic guitar um, guy. Um, so I wasn't really too interested at that age. I wasn't really too interested in following that, that, that path. I wanted to kind of, um, I think at the time I was quite into sort of a lot of stuff like, quite sort of um soft rocky bon jovi type stuff and i was i i sort of envisaged myself as some kind of guitar hero uh quite an impressionable age of 13 so i was kind of on that path but um really into my blues as well i think um i think i found prince at that age which was quite useful um but yeah i, I was always in at school um there was a really good a, a music room um, which I used to spend all my time in. And they also had a, um, a sort of keyboard room. And it was quite the early early stages of just, be, just as um, MIDI um, was starting to be used with keyboards and stuff. And they had um, some Atari STs, which are the sort of computers that a lot of people were using. Um, so that was a real sort of interesting... Um, found that fascinating um and as i got a bit older um what really got me wanting to be in a band was was the sort of manchester indie band um 
scene that happened with like, like Stone Roses and the Happy Mondays. Um, that really kind of was quite a pivotal moment for me. I love that. I really sort of wanted to, I sort of idolised those bands and the guitarists, especially guitarists like John Squire from the Stone Roses. Um, but also it was, the, it was the crossover that was starting to happen with those bands, um, sort of dance crossover and the remixes that were happening, like the Paul Oakenfold and Andy Weatherall doing stuff with uh, Happy Mondays and uh, Primal Scream as well. There was a lot of crossover happening, which was starting to get me kind of a bit more, a bit more sort of peaked my interest a little bit in that, that area. But I was still basically an indie kid until I went to Nottingham um, to do a, as Jim mentioned briefly, um, it was it was called Contemporary Arts, and it was uh, essentially a music course, um, which. Um, they had a they they had a really great basement studio with uh, lots of interesting equipment um and i met some really great people on that course some people who had their own setups at home in their bedrooms which uh i really interested in never seen sampling before and i was starting to experiment with that but it was it was when um nottingham in, in the early 90s had a a really um, great house scene um, and I was starting to go out to clubs and stuff um, so people uh, like the DIY collective which you heard of they're putting on lots of parties it was um, their regular night in Nottingham bounced and I was going to these nights and starting to enjoy that music but also a good friend of mine Nathan um, was he was he was my flatmate and um he had a really good record collection of um house and other stuff and sort of disco and stuff and he would be like sort of back home he'd be saying oh you know that tune that you you know that you heard last night in the club or you really like that this is and then he'd be sort of saying this is the original sample this is what this is where it came from and that joining the dots between where you know the origins of house music to disco was fascinating, and just that um, um, it was it was a real sort of wow moment, you know, because I had a sample and I was just like, oh wow, so this is you can actually you know go sort of loop, um, rooting around old records and find these things and get them in the sampler, um, and it was. Yeah, we used to start, you know, we started going to car boot sales and like Jim was saying, um, we we kind of met on my final year, I think, and um, I was just starting to experiment and um, knocking up ideas. I n I'd never really, it was just messing about in, in the bedroom, but Jim had been a bit more... I think it, it kind of a, a little bit more advanced in that you'd, you'd actually had some music out and had some some good connections as well, sort of connections with record labels as well. So um, that really kind of put a little bit of focus into what I was doing. Um, and yeah, that's kind of, that takes us up to the Crazy P era and 
you know, it's funny. Um, I don't think a lot of us could have been able to pull off building these type of, let's call it garage bands or production suites without being able to bring that gear home. It got to a point before we were all going into this production stuff to hire those, those big studios and have all these musicians come. Unless you had loads of money, it wasn't happening. It, the drum machine and sampler made it to a point where you can all go together in someone's uh, basement or their bedroom and, and chuck out a song like that. Free to that, that wasn't possible. Mm. You know? The yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that was the, it was a way of getting those kind of, that, that, that production sound into your music, you know, sample up a, an old a disco break and there you go. You've got a, an authentic sounding drum trap, just like that. So how many songs would you say in the beginning stages when you guys started to work together, did it take to get to that first track where you said, right, this is it. Now we know Crazy P is going to be on its way now. Or I'm going to be able to hand this out to some DJs to play. What was the lab time for all of you? I think we felt. It, I just think I think we felt pretty good about what we were doing from the beginning. Mm. My recollection is, it could have even been the first few tracks we did that got signed to paper. Is that is that how you remember it? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the memory is 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 is, is fairly sketchy, but I seem to remember things happening quite quick. And I just remember, I remember sort of, I remember Nathan pulling out samples for us as well. That was quite sort of, um, that was, this is my friend that was mentioned before. And I, I seem to remember the, the first few things that we just got in the sampler. Yeah, I think we did, actually we did, we did one collaboration before Crazy Penis. Which was the one on music of Vitae. Yeah. Um, and then my, yeah, yeah, I think we just basically made two tunes, which ended up being our first 12 inch on paper. The same friend I mentioned who um took me to Cream, a guy called Phil Cooper. Um wow. he was he was DJing at Cream by this point. He had his own record shop. And he was pretty well connected, and um, I remember that tracks to Phil. That's and, Phil Cooper, Fat Phil, or just yeah, Fat Phil. So I went to school with Phil. Um, so Phil sent the tunes up to paper, really, and it was a very quick turnaround. It's like you know, it's only a couple of days. He had this. He, he said, "Oh, come around my house. I've got something to play." So I came round, and Elliot Eastwick from the label had left this answer phone message. He was like, Phil, these two tracks, we definitely want them. He said, but is it right they're from Wales? Because if they're from Wales, I'm not interested. He was joking, obviously. It's like, you know, obviously. <laughs> uh, Phil, he knew Phil was from Wales. It was a, it was a bit of a dig. It was a, a bit of a cheap dig at Phil. But, um, and that was it. We were, that was it. We were up to Manchester then for a bit of a meeting. And, um, but even at that stage, I think it's fair to say it was, we were in Hobbyland, really. Yes, yeah. it was. We, we had no great vision for you know for 
taken over the world. It was like, we just really enjoyed the process. I think what we thought we, we were doing, we were really happy with. We thought it was fresh sounding um, and we just kept on going. And it's like, yeah, I don't think there's any point where we've said, yeah, where we where we felt like, oh, right, yeah, it's a proper job now. <laughs> it's like, uh, we just sort of kept going. And, uh, and, then, and, and then gradually, um, as we made the records and we got, you know, we, you know, we, after that first 12 inch, I think, I think we did another 12 and then we made an album and um, it was just quite organic, you might say, but um, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, there was no big picture. There was no um, massive vision. It was just really for us about the buzz we got from making the music. Mm -hmm. That's, that's the question. You know, it's like, once again, What's that first record that the phones are ringing to you guys? Like, yo, I want you for this. Yo, I need you. Because, know, you know, there's always that first, that one record where you go, whoa, went from hobby to now legit. Where is that translating record? Which one? Say it's the first album, That's probably. Yeah. Or even the first single on... Paper, but yeah, the album was that's was, was, was summer bummer first yeah. first single because mm. I remember that and I wasn't anything to do with you then, but I thought that was awesome. And I mean, they, they put out they'd already put out issue one downtime as their first record, then the the, the book, and then Eric Rugg, um, don't fuck with my shit, uh, was the third record. Oh, my shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was called Dirty that's Jesus. What like, that's what I like about this group. Clean cut, coming with their ties, clean, ready. Don't fuck with my shit. Yeah, well, that was Eric. You have to blame Eric for that one. That wasn't for us, but um, it was... And I think we were the fourth release. Yeah, um, something like that. Know, so yeah. the records that come before were super... To, I mean, before we got signed, were, were super cool. I mean, Phil used to get the promos and they just used to arrive in a brown paper bag, no writing. So you knew it was from paper. It was like, you know, and he, he, used, to, he used to get them at home. We used to go around and listen to them. And it was just like, this is where it's at. This is totally where it's at. So I think, yeah, getting signed to them was a real, it was a boost. Here's the thing about yesteryear to posing today. People, check this out. Back in the day, you got very little information, more white labels, something scripted, maybe a, a, an ID number of the pressing or code. Records would blow up from that. Nobody knew what was what. Nobody was knew how it went. They knew this was a hot track. Meanwhile, coming forward in the time machine, you have to explain everything. You have to describe everything. You have to be, it's, it's more about the texting and the hashtagging than it is about the actual, sometimes the product. And back in the day, you listened more so than who you could care less, basically who did it. It was more about the sound. Then if it happened that it was your favorite DJ or producer, even better. But you didn't judge it on that. You judged it on the quality of what you heard. And that's how that fire would, would would travel 
or should I say the explosion will begin because now it's so, so different, but we'll, we'll, we'll touch about that in a moment, you know? I think there was always a guaranteed quality with labels like paper and new phonic as well. So, you know, you kind of, you could buy almost slightly blindly and just expect good quality. There was a very definite sound to those two labels. For me, for me, there was anyway. They put the stamp on the UK sound because yeah. up until then we were listening to predominantly American mm. music in terms of house music. Um, and um, there was oh, there was more progressive sound here, but that didn't really we weren't really into that. So if you wanted something soulful, mm. um, uh, then they were the labels to to go to, and they and I think they kicked off a lot of. Like, you know, Ralph Lawson at 2020, another one. Um, it started a flux of, of UK labels, which were high quality, um, high integrity, mm -hmm. um, you know, great artwork. Uh, and the, the records were fresh, totally fresh sounding. That's the thing, though. There was no rules. You did what you felt. You interpreted, you heard something out. And that was, I'm going to speak from me as a producer. A lot of us were doing that. Of course, you would go see somebody you love playing music. Please search for part two of this podcast on the platform you're watching or listening to. And please do not forget to follow us.